the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Jessica Stan begins today's broadcast of Way of Grace with this thought. That's what Stephen said. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. That same God of glory appeared to Moses. And then he appeared again to Joshua. And then he showed up in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we beheld his glory because of the impartation uh, of the Spirit of God or the anointing of the Spirit of God on his life. And the glory of God in Christ is made manifest by the Spirit of God through the church today. Grace Bible Church in Hayward welcomes you to Way of Grace, the daily radio outreach that takes us verse by verse through God's Word. We've been steadily making our way through the book of Acts, where we've been reading about the establishment of the early church. Today, we're going to zero in on chapter 3 as we take a look at the example that the apostles set forth for us by not taking credit for God's work, something we're quite prone to do in this current day and age. God deserves all of the glory, and the sooner we realize that, the better. Join us here in Acts chapter 3 as we hand the program back over to Pastor Jessica Stan. See, this is what I was saying in our Hebrew study It is critical that you and I understand the objective of God the Father in bringing many sons to glory. There is a unity that he is establishing with people groups from all over the world. And that unity is being established through the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. And by the power of the Holy Ghost who brings men and women to Christ and in bringing them to Christ, we are bringing them to God and we are establishing a oneness between the people that are saved, who are influenced by the immediate presence of God called the what? Holy Ghost. Who see Jesus for all that he is. He is our mediator. Who points to God the Father, who is the first cause of everything. He is the one by which we are all made one. Are you guys following me? There's a a comprehensive unity here that is critical to God's glory and the security of our own soul in this process of redemption. We are all one. We are all one in him. It's a beautiful concept. Now, if if it evades you as something important, I want you to think about this. It was something that was constantly on Christ's mind, so much so he spent 26 verses praying and pleading to the Father that he would do this for us. Listen to the text, verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21, fill it out. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me. Now, what we're talking about here is union. You, Father, are in me. You guys got that? And I in thee. That's called union, right? It's also called communion. You do know that, right? That they also may be one in us. Do you see the unity? 
We're talking about Christ being in the Father, the Father being in Christ, which is what he said in John 14. He said it over and over again. Do you guys know not that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? If you don't see that, at least examine the works. Because there's no explanation for these works apart from the unity and communion of the Father and the Son. Which unity and communion we have been called into by the gospel. What's fascinating about verse 21 is the passion of Christ for his church to be a partaker of that unity. So much so, he's requesting it of the Father. Listen, in order that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see that last clause? That goes back to the title of our study. God the Father hath glorified his Son, Jesus Christ. See, one of the byproducts of Christ's accomplished redemption at Calvary is that for the last 2,000 years, the Father has been intentionally glorifying the Son. Everything that you and I are called to do in terms of our being partakers of the divine nature and and, uh, serving the cause of God is to glorify the Son. He has a right to be glorified. You guys understand that? The son has a right to be glorified, and this is the objective for which he brings us into unity with the father and the son by the spirit, and thus into community with the father and the son by the spirit, in order that the father through the son by the Holy Ghost may work through us to cause the world to believe. Am I telling the truth? This is critically important to get. So our master place a great deal of commodity upon this objective. I want to be glorified and I want to be glorified in them so that they can enjoy the mutual benefits that come from being brought into union and communion with us as we have it. And therefore, verse 22, and the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as thou hast loved me. Let's go back to our text. You might ask the question, what is the glory that Christ gave them, that the Father gave him, that they all might be one and that the world may believe? You can actually answer that by staying within the syllogism and working your way back from the believer through Christ to the Father. You don't have to step outside of the syllogism. The syllogism is very clear. The Father sent the Son. Isn't that the gospel? And the Father gave the Son that which was necessary for the Son to glorify the Father. Do you know what the Father gave the Son which was necessary to glorify the Father? The Spirit. You got it? And so the son gives the church the same thing that the father gave the son in order that the church might glorify the son as the father glorified the son through the spirit. So if we were to lock into the third person, which is going to be part of our study next year when we go back to theology proper and really work through the beauty of the Godhead. If we were to if we were to stop with the third person, we would have to contemplate him for a long time in terms of just his office. That's called the spirit of glory. That's what he's called. He's called the spirit of glory. Now, God the Father is called the God of glory. That's what Stephen said. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. That same God of glory appeared to Moses. And then he appeared again to Joshua. 
And then he showed up in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we beheld his glory because of the impartation uh, of the Spirit of God or the anointing of the Spirit of God on his life. And the glory of God in Christ is made manifest by the Spirit of God through the church today. Am I making some sense? In other words, the Spirit of God is the means by which there is a portal open into the revelation of Christ by which men and women see his glory. Otherwise, all you see is a man, maybe a very peculiar man, extraordinary man, maybe a very knowledgeable man, intellectually wise man, maybe a good person, a philanthropic in nature, but you don't see his glory without the vehicle of the third person. The goal of the third person is to glorify Christ to us, in us, and through us. Going back to our text, let's work through point number four. So now, here comes the occasion wherein if the disciples hadn't already been instructed, they could stumble, but they won't stumble here. They certainly won't. This is powerful. Watch how this works. So this calls us to our our fourth point where it tells us in verse 3, That the lame man that was sitting at the temple gate entered in to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who seen Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. So you and I don't believe in accidents. We don't believe in coincidences. We believe in divine providence. We believe that every detail of everything that takes place in this world is actually orchestrated by a sovereign God who meticulously governs them so that they bring to pass his will. The multi, multifaceted, multitude nature of God's will. That means he uses everything to bring about a particular objective. It may be, it may be profoundly complex in its nature if we were to investigate it and unfold it, but the event occurs just as God wants it. Like if we were to just back up and work through the day of that lame man and the people who were to take him and drop him at the gate and all of the obstacles and potential conflicts and the struggles that brought him to that gate, if we were to back up and consider John and James, what they were doing that day, what could have hindered them from coming to temple on that day, remember we are back on the premise of New things being introduced into old things. So they are operating out of a new paradigm that is called the gospel of the free grace of God in Christ. But they are functioning in an old temple system because there are people who in that old system must meet the reality of that system. You got that? And one of them is this lame man. He must meet the reality of that system because heretofore all he's gotten is religion. And religion can't heal you. It can't fix your problem. It can't solve your case. But Peter and John are providentially asked by this man. Now, mind you now, all kinds of people are coming through. The thoroughfare of the masses are coming through these four temple gates. We are at the Corinthian brass gate. It's probably on the west end or the east end of the temple where common folk can come in. Obviously, the lame man can't go in because he's lame, so he's just dropped at the gate. But it's there where providentially Peter and John are asked by this lame man. And here's how the story unfolds. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. You guys see that? And so now that's point number four in our outline. And it's called apostolic authority affirmed. Now, I'm drawing this out because... 
Peter, Luke is impressing upon us a command, an imperative that Peter gives to this lame man. What this lame man is told by Peter to do is to divest himself of every potential distraction, everything around him that might cause him to take his eyes off of them and put it on it. What he is calling this lame man to is full, undivided attention. He's calling him to focus, fix your eyes, fix your ears, fix your thoughts on us. Hone in and lock in and block everything else out. That requires a kind of grace that says the person that's going to do this is doing it because they have a need. So Now, when God starts dealing with us in terms of commandments and imperatives, if we are believers, we are desirous to do those things. That was, an, that was a kind of proof that this man had a resident relationship or desire for a relationship with God. Are you hearing me? Now the nature of that relationship, and we'll be able to prove this in another text. Now the nature of the relationship is that this man is going to be commanded to seek God through apostolic authority. See what Christ is doing now? He's affirming the reality of his triumphant work at Calvary through the ministry of the apostles. He's getting people to understand that he has left a vicar, and that is the apostolic band who will serve to perpetuate his gospel around the world. But we've got to come to Christ through them. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Look on us. Literally in the Greek is look at us. But it's a very powerful concept. Now in your outline, I say not to us, but on us. The prepositions are very important, right? They're not saying to the layman, look to us as the means by which you're saved or by which you will have your needs met or by which you will have your alms given. He's saying, look on us. We become the vehicle by which this is done. Now, I have in our outline Acts chapter 14, verse 9 and 10 as a commentary. And I want you to see it before I make my comment about why Peter did this. Go with me to Acts chapter 9. Now, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 14, verse 9, I'm sorry. And listen to how the same kind of event occurs, only this time with the Apostle Paul. This is at Iconium and Lystria. And in Acts chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, notice the language. Stay with me now. Here's what it says over in verse uh, 7. And there, that is in Derby, in the city of Lyconia, uh, there they preached the gospel. Remember, the theme of the book of Acts is the preaching of the gospel. Verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra. What was he? Impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb. That's a long time. Who never had walked. Now, both this account and Luke's account is really, uh, in the uh, third chapter account, is really the, uh, the privileges and liberties of the mind of a physician. Remember, Luke's a doctor. So Luke is actually dealing with details to extract, as it were, from the information, uh, a kind of sympathy because he's being specific. It almost sounds tautological or redundant, but it's not. Listen to what he says. He says, now there was a man at Lystra who was impotent, watch this, in his feet. 
So we have the location. Being a cripple from his mother's womb. Now we know the extent to which he has been lame since his mother's womb. And then to cap it off, who had never walked. God's getting ready to glorify his son again, isn't he? Is he? He's getting ready to glorify his son again with the kind of miracles that are authentic in nature, not these bogus, foolish miracles that go on in churches today. Now watch what he says. I want you to get this. The same person heard Paul, what? Speak. Who steadfastly, what? Beholding him. Do you see how Luke is using the same concept? Who's fixing his eyes on the apostles, because at this time, in the providence of God, this individual who's going to have their needs met are going to have their needs met by an authorized preacher. And notice what the text says. And beholding him, and beholding him, this is Paul beholding him, perceiving, watch this, that he had what? To be what? Now watch this. Saul, with a loud voice, said, I mean, sorry, said with a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. Did he, did he say that? And what did that man do? That brother leaped up, didn't he? He leaped up. Now, I'll deal with the implications of that in terms of its redemptive and spiritual connotation when we get there in about six months. There are some distinctives between this and chapter 3 that are subtle but important. They're subtle but important. Here's one overarching reality that I'll just share with you, and I want you to go back to our text. This is why you can go back to our text, what I'm saying. This is why I believe in Acts chapter 3, Peter, who would have had the same kind of discernment as well as John, as Paul did, would have been able to perceive that the lame man in chapter 3 was already trusting God. So that there was not the preliminary evangelism and witnessing and calling that man to faith that was necessary to be done since that man was in a position that constituted a lame person who was in need of Christ, hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that would only come from God. So in the same way, Peter says, look upon us. And the text tells us this. Now watch this. Look at what it says. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive Something of them. So what we have to accept with this verse is that Peter and John did not uh, tempt the man or taunt the man with giving him money. Why? Because Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. So what I am calling your attention to is not about negotiating a means by which you can have your physical needs met. Let's squash that right now. Let's put an end to that right now. In fact, that would be a test, wouldn't it? Here you are brought by your buddies, your family, your friends to the edge of the temple because the temple is an Old Testament paradigm. Lame people can come into the true church, but you couldn't go into the temple. You had to be right before you went in, right? So you're laying at the gate because you need God. God may show up, but if God doesn't show up, somebody will give you a a penny or a dime or you can live for a day. You got to come back tomorrow. It's a job, right? On this occasion, you end up meeting God because you're hoping in God, you're trusting in God. And God tells you to do specific things. And now we get to discover what we call the obedience of faith. And this is what Peter does. He says, silver and gold have, have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. 
So if I were to stop and go into the implications of that with regards to the gifting that God has bestowed upon us as believers, I am obligated to give what God has given to me. That's clearly one implication. It is more blessed to give than to what? It is much more blessed to give than to receive. So what I have to do is assess in my life. Has God poured into my life gifting? Has he given me something which other people need? If he has, I want a disposition of soul to give it. Because it's not automatic that when God gives you something, you're going to be ready to give it back. This is true. One of the things that the spirit of God has to teach us to do is not be selfish. I was talking to my brothers, and you guys hear me talk about this frequently. In evangelism class, we are talking about how to identify people who operate out of different worldviews, who are trapped by narcissism, trapped by consumerism, trapped by existentialism, trapped by a postmodern ideology, trapped by all of these different worldviews that unless you actually are ready to address those worldviews, you and that person can be talking apples and oranges. You have to be able to actually see the kind of pit that they are in and use the appropriate key of knowledge to go inside that pit to have a conversation to bring them out because people are in different pits. This is why some folks in their attempt to share the gospel are completely ineffective because they don't even know where to start with people. What are you going to do with a person who has a pluralistic worldview? who believe all ways are right, and therefore they don't have a category of, uh, of non-contradicting uh, principles or propositions, which means you can hold a view that's completely diametrically opposed to theirs, but they don't see it as a contradiction because they're pluralists. Am I making some sense? Like my Hindu brethren. I tell my brothers and sisters all the time, when you share the gospel with our uh, Easterners, our Middle Easterners, and particularly our Hindu brethren, our Indian brethren, and they get all excited about Jesus and go, yeah, 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 I accept Jesus, I accept Jesus. And you go, ooh, they just became a Christian. I said, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They didn't become a Christian. They simply added as an adjunct to the other 200 or 300 million gods that they have chosen to embrace that day, Jesus right along with them. Okay, so now, now, now follow this. To get saved is to abandon every idol in the universe as abominable for the one exclusive relationship with the true and the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. You are not a Christian until you have settled the matter that Jesus Christ is Lord alone. Ooh, that empties out half the churches today. What did Peter have? Peter had a commission. Peter had a promise. And Peter had the prayer of a prevailing high priest who knows how to find his sheep in every dire strait that they are in and use the means of grace to get that sheep out of their predicament into a situation where they can love and honor and serve God. Do you believe that? Peter had a promise. He had a commission and he had the resources of the mediator working in his life. That makes it easy for us. I don't know if you, you don't know that. It makes it easy. If you have the commission, God has commissioned you and he's commissioned every believer and you have the promise, God will work in you. Everything necessary to produce in us a means by which we glorify him. And then we have a prevailing high priest to see to it that it happens. All you and I have to do is continue walking with God. The opportunity will open itself up. This is what I mean. This is uh, evangelism and witnessing is not what we do. It's who we are. 
Here we go. So he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Do you see that? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now that was the command that Peter gave this lame man. It was much like the command that Paul gave the other lame man. Well, you are listening to Way of Grace with Pastor Jessica Stand from Grace Bible Church here in Hayward. Closing out our time together today, we invite you to reach out to us. Let us know how the program encourages you in your walk with Christ. Questions, comments, prayer requests are always welcome. You can either write to us, give us a call, or stop by our website and drop us an email. Now, the best place to go, of course, is the website. Not only will you be able to write to us via email, you'll be able to get more information about who we are, what we believe, worship times, how to get here. Grace-Bible.com is our website. Again, that's Grace-Bible.com. If you wish to give us a call, the number is 510-886-9782. That's 510-886-9782. If you're writing to us, our address is 22768 Main Street. That's 22768 Main Street. Here in Hayward, the zip code 94541. That's 22768 Main Street, Hayward, California, 94541. One final note as we close out our time today, this program is listener-supported. If you wish to partner with us, we would be more than grateful. This broadcast airs throughout the Bay Area, as well as online, impacting thousands for the sake of Christ. And that is our hope and our goal. If you'd like to partner with us along those lines, feel free to write or give us a call. No gift is too large, no gift too small, whether a one-time gift or a monthly support. You're more than welcome to reach out. We would love to partner with you as we minister the gospel of Jesus to the Bay Area and the World Wide Web. Thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time, may Christ be your way of grace. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.